following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Hello, are we on? We have power. There we go. Good morning. Uh, this morning, before we turn into the Word, I want to give a short, uh, actually, I want to have a short prayer time and a short update uh, about our school. And uh, you got a little slip here that uh, in your bulletins. If you have that, you can pull it out. And um, tomorrow, for uh, I know that for the high school students and for you know, people on the, American, the Western calendar, uh, school is about to end. But for the Thai students, they have their first day of school tomorrow. Some of them have already started. And so uh, for our Mars Hill School project, first day of school is tomorrow. It is a huge day. And, uh, but before I, we, I talk about the school, I want to give you just a little background uh, of kind of how we got here. And this past week, I had the chance to go to non-province, uh, some of the older girls in our children's home in Bonsan Rock 3, had not had a chance to go home yet and visit their families. Uh, school starts next week, so uh, I did not really have time to drive to non-province and to spend the whole week there, but uh, nobody else could take them. I drew the short straw or the long straw or whatever. Uh, took them, and uh, the, uh, the two girls, Am and Yui, are in our children's home. There were three other girls that we saw and visited, actually four other girls, six altogether. Uh, out in the middle of nowhere, the, uh, the two girls, Am and Yui, uh, this is Moji. Uh, go, can you go back to that picture before? Yeah, the, the little old lady there is who I want to talk about and give a testimony about her. She is Am and Yui's grandmother. And I actually stayed at her house, which is right behind us there for the week. Um, got to hear more of her story and their story. And it really just really blessed me. And that's why I want to share it with you this morning. Uh, she's, I think, about 63 years old, 62 years old, somewhere in there. She just became a believer a little over three years ago. And uh, before that time, her life was a mess. She had six children. They were a mess. She was very depressed, very lonely, very isolated, kind of the grouchy old lady of the village. Uh, Am and Yui's mother is, there, is her daughter, uh, several years ago when Am and Yui were, uh, I think, about five and six years old, their mother was in a motorcycle accident and was left paralyzed. And so people in the village had to carry her around. They don't have money for things like wheelchairs or anything like that. They had to carry her around. She uh, became very depressed and drank poison and killed herself. So that left Am and Yui without a mom. Their dad, who we also met on this trip, was a very hard, harsh man. He remarried um, their stepmom, moved to another village, uh, sent the two girls off to boarding school. They would come home on the weekends, and the stepmom, when these girls were seven, eight, nine years old, would send them out to work in the fields on Saturday and Sunday all day long, like 12-hour days uh, working in the fields. They would get paid money at the end of Sunday night before she sent them back to school. The stepmom would steal their money. So they would have to go back to school without money to buy food for lunch. Um, so that's kind of the situation in this village. The grandmother was just burdened for these two girls, and she knew they weren't being taken care of. 
She came to Christ about three years ago and uh, really had the hope of Christ. Radical transformation. She's just the sweetest, happiest lady. And she started to pray for her two girls that God would provide a place for them that was safe and where they could get a good education. And she's telling me all this story, and I just realize, it just hits me like a ton of bricks, that we're the answer to her prayer. And, you know, I think about how I've prayed and how I've had these burdens and desires, but I just was really impressed all of a sudden. Somebody else, even before me, before I knew any of this, was praying and was trusting God to take care of her grandkids. And so here we are now, three years later, uh, we have this children's home, uh, we're starting this school. I just thought, really, some of it's an answer to my prayer, but how much of it is the prayer of this saint, this uh, lady who's just trusting God with her life? And so tomorrow we have the first day of school. If you look on your little slip of, little slip of paper, you'll see that it says, we have 83 students and 25 staff. Oh, my word. <laughs> Where did these people all come from? I don't know. Um, we actually have joined with uh, Ban Imjai, one of the other children's homes ascending kids, and also Zoe Home is sending a bunch of kids. Um, we have hired a bunch of teachers and staff. Uh, it still continues to be just a struggle there every day, a tough thing, starting a school. If I had known what I was getting into, I would have run far and fast. Um, interesting testimony, we moved into this old school, Don Green School, near World Club land, actually. Um, 80-year-old school. Hasn't been used for about six years. Uh, the villagers there, when we started moving in, said, why are you moving into that building? It's haunted. Because, you know, Thai people believe in ghosts. They said every night they would hear sounds and they would, you know, there were ghosts in this building. Uh, they don't know anything about us. They don't know who we are. But they said, when you guys moved in, there hasn't been a sound. Not a sound. So the ghosts are gone. <laughs> but the spiritual battles are not. Uh, those, those ghosts may be gone, but there still are just struggles. And, um, you know, it's this mad rush to get things ready for tomorrow. So I'd like to take, if, if you don't mind, take a few minutes right now and just pray for uh, the school and the teachers and staff, the kids, um, you know, kids like Yui, other kids that uh, just want to get a good education, want to grow in God and, and see His grace in their life. So there's things on this little sheet you can pray for. We printed this off in hopes that you would take it home and pray this week. But uh, let's just take a minute now. It's kind of a big day tomorrow for the school. But if you wouldn't mind getting in groups of two or three, four people and just take a minute and pray for uh, the Marcel School Project and for the kids, not just at our children's home, but at these other homes, that this would be an avenue for God to build His character and life in them help them grow and mature in Christ as well as uh, in every area of their life. So let's take just a few minutes and pray before we look at the word. Father, we do just join together and lift up our hearts in prayer and praise and thank you for what you're doing. Lord, we just ask that you would uh, just provide everything we need for the school. Uh, Lord, that uh, in everything we would follow you. Lord, we thank you for uh, this fellowship of believers and their heart and desire to be behind this and to pray and um, see it move forward. And Lord, we just pray that it would be one small piece of what you're doing to show your goodness and grace here in Thailand and to do uh, your work of redeeming and bringing your salvation. So we just trust you with all of it. Um, 
pray your blessings on all the staff we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, all week long people have they see me as have been asking me what we're preaching, you know, what the next what's next? So here's the moment of truth. Ready for this? We need a drum roll. Where's the drummer? We're going to be, uh, believe it or not, we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai. Okay, I'm sure that's one of your favorites. You can start looking for it now. You'll need about 15 minutes to find it in your Bibles. I'll, I'll give you a trick, though. If you, go to, if you go to Matthew and turn back three books, you'll be there. Okay, otherwise, you'll be, the message will be over and you'll still be looking. All right. Well, you may be wondering why I picked Haggai. Well, first of all, I did because it's short. Uh, I know a lot of people are leaving soon. I'm leaving. Uh, I really didn't want to start something long. Uh, I wanted something short. It's only two chapters, so that's pretty short. Uh, I don't know if we'll actually make it through all, both chapters, but we'll try. Um, it, it really does have a practical message for today. And I, I, I've always loved the small Book of the Minor Prophets. I think you'll be surprised at how it speaks to our lives and our circumstances today. And also, I was reminded, reading Second uh, Peter 1.19 says, Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. <coughs> Uh, Paul and Peter and the other apostles in Jesus referred often to the law and the prophets. And I think it's important for us to have a good balance and perspective to, uh, you know, not just always live in the New Testament, but uh, there is good stuff in the Old Testament as well. Um, The message this morning is uh, called Making Time. And one of the reasons this book is relevant, the first chapter really deals a lot with this whole issue of time. And it doesn't come out always so well in some of the translations, but in the Hebrew, the word time is very prominent. And uh, so let me read the first few verses. Like I said, we're not going to even go through the first chapter. We're only going to go through the first four verses today. But uh, let's read those verses. On August 29th of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruin? Um, the, and just in those those four verses, the word time is used uh, three times. Um, and uh, as, as we unfold and kind of unpack the story of the book, uh, one of their main problems was this whole question about time and not really feeling it was the right time, not feeling that they had the time to do what God had called them to. And I was kind of struck by that, how, you know, 2,500 2, years later, by the way, this is takes place in the 6th century B.C., uh, Haggai would have been a contemporary of, of Buddha, believe it or not. They lived at the same century. 
the events going on here would have been the same concurrent with the time that Buddha was wandering around India teaching and coming to Thailand and all that. Uh, how some things have changed, but how a lot of things haven't changed. How, uh, you know, if you were to show up uh, back then at Jerusalem, uh, people would have been talking about how busy they are. Is anybody here busy? Hmm? If you're not, I've got, I've got a job for you. Okay? If you're not busy, we can come up with things for you to do. Uh, my, my guess is that no one here spent the last week just bored looking for something to do. I never hear, I never hear people come to me and say, oh, I am just so bored, don't you have something I can do? Yeah, I never hear that. What I hear is, oh, I'm so busy. You know, I would love to come to this, I'd love to do that, I'd love to be there, but I just can't because I'm so busy. All right? How many of you feel that pressure of just busy, lack of time? Okay, a few honest people. All right? Uh, all this pressure of time. Uh, believe it or not, I know this is kind of hard to imagine, but you may, you may not know this, but back then, 2,500 years ago, they had the same exact 24 hours a day that we do. Right? Time has not compressed. Now, in my own life, time has compressed. Every year that goes by, it gets shorter. And uh, In fact, we'll announce later, next Sunday, we're having graduation Sunday. Don't forget that. We'll have more details later. Um, I, I'm glad Kathy reminded me that it's the end of the school year because I was, I was kind of living somewhere around, you know, that, that, that special day between February and March. Right? That's where I was. I was not in May because for me, time's just getting compressed. But over history, everybody's had the same 24 hours, same seven days a week. The earth is not uh, circling the sun faster. It's not spinning faster. And uh, they had the same issues. They had the same problems. Uh, and they had this issue of how do you make time for God? How do you, in your busy schedule, in your busy world, do you make time for God? Now, of course, they were busy doing different things. They were not busy checking their email. They were not busy trying to get their computer to work. Uh, they were not busy, you know, Skyping with people halfway around the world. Uh, they were busy with other things, living, food. When I was in the village this week, I went into the kitchen to see what was for supper, and they, they had these long, what I found out later were young banana trees, and they had this big, broad-bladed hatchet kind of thing, and they were smashing this banana leaves, uh, this banana tree, kind of pulverizing it, and after that, they would take the sharp edge of the knife and chop it into little pieces. And there was a stack of it, and I thought... And I know they make strange things, and I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting supper. I don't know what they're making here, because I mean, like, the bamboo stuff. I thought, what is this? Well, come to find out, it wasn't for us. It was for the pigs, right? <laughs> and uh, they had to spend every morning and night, you know, all this time making pig food. Well, most of us don't have to do that. Throughout history, though, you know, living, surviving, dealing with life, there's always stuff to fill up our days. Always stuff to fill up time. Uh, Back then, life was no different than it is now in that uh, really there weren't enough hours in a day. And uh, one of the issues that comes down in the themes of this book is how do you make time and are you making time for God? Are you making God a priority? Or are you so caught up with living, with daily activities, with your own life that you are neglecting the important things of God? Uh, so that's what we're going to look at. That's what the book is about, especially the first chapter. 
We're going to introduce the subject today. Um, and to really get a picture of what's going on, you need a, a, a short history, uh, a brief history of Israel, uh, specifically of the temple and the tabernacle. Uh, as you know, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, uh, God brought them out into the wilderness and he asked them to build for him a tent, a tent of meeting. And God asked them to pitch that tent in the center of the camp. And uh, the picture was that God would dwell in their midst, right? Uh, they were on a camping trip, and God was going to go camping out with them. And he had this tent built. They put the Ark of the Covenant in there, and God's glory filled that, filled, filled that tent. And the picture was that God desired to be in their midst. God didn't want to be a God that they worshipped far beyond the heavens, Although he is, like some great songs we sang this morning about God as the sovereign, transcendent God who's way out there. But he's also a God who has come to Israel and longs to, to live with them, to camp out with them. Uh, they finally came to the promised land and many difficult years of conquest, conquering the new land. Uh, the time of the judges, things kind of went terribly wrong in Israel. But the tent was still there. The ark was still there. God was still camping out in their midst. Along comes finally the monarchy, David. Uh, David moves the ark and the tent to Jerusalem. And at one point, David cries out to God. He says, God, here I am living in this beautiful house, paneled, elaborate, fancy, and you're still living in a tent. David said, that's just not right. I want to build you a house, a permanent house, a permanent dwelling place, right? And God says, well, David, you're not the man to do it. You've shed too much blood. Uh, but your son will. So what does David do? He can't build the temple, but he makes sure everything is in place. And he starts collecting materials. He collects stones. Uh, the forests of Lebanon, they bring down huge, vast amounts of trees and timber. He starts collecting gold and silver. Massive wealth to build this worthy house for God, Right? Well, along comes Solomon. Solomon, everything's in place. The plans have been done. The architecture, architectural drawings are done up. Uh, Solomon begins construction and builds this incredible, elaborate house for God. But from the tent of the house, really the external shell has changed, but the intent of it is the same. It's just simply a place where God would live on earth among them. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, he... he declares, you know, God, we know that you're not contained or limited to this house. We're not foolish enough to think that like the other gods, you need a place to live, and then all of you, you know, you're going to move here with your little suitcase and your little trunk, and you're going to unpack, and that you're going to live just in this temple. We know that you're the God of the heavens. But at the same time, we know that you have chosen to make your presence real and present and with us in this place. So it was the focus of Israel's worship. It was the place where they came to corporately lift up the name of God. It was the place where they offered sacrifices. But most of all, it was a place where they met God. And Solomon, in his dedication prayer, says, God, when the people turn to this place, when they turn to you and they pray, hear their prayers and work and answer them. Uh, throughout the Psalms, you get a picture of, of what the temple meant uh, how it played out in the life of Israel. Let me just give you a couple of verses from Psalm 46 and 48. Psalms 46 says, A river brings joy to the city of God, the sacred home of the Most High. 
the key words, the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed. From the very break of day, God will protect it. Okay, and they had this, this idea that, you know, when God lives with you, you're pretty much invincible. So, you know, bring it on, you know, the nations of the world. God has his house here, and God's powerful and strong and mighty. He's not going to let anything happen to his house. In fact, they had developed this theology, that, this idea that Jerusalem really was indestructible. You know, as long as God lives there, you know, it's untouchable. Uh, Psalms 48 says about the same thing. He says, um, We had heard of the city's glory, but now we have seen it ourselves, the city of the Lord of hosts. It is the city of our God. He will make it safe forever. We will medit- O oh God, we will meditate on your unfailing love as we worship in your temple. As your name deserves, O oh God, you will be praised to the ends of the earth. Your strong right hand is filled with victory. Let the people on Mount Zion rejoice. Uh, just this idea that Mount Zion, the city of God, the temple of God, the house of God, uh, this indestructible city uh, where God dwelt and lived. Uh, they, were, they were mistaken, however, in some of their theology. And they didn't understand that God's presence and dwelling with them was dependent on their obedience and following him. As we all know, they didn't do so well after Solomon's reign. Things went downhill. And they began to ignore and neglect the temple and really ignore and neglect God. And they rebelled against him. And after many, uh, many generations of turning their back on God, God uh, raises up the Babylonian army to come and destroy Jerusalem and remarkably to destroy his own house his own place of worship. And the Babylonians came, they leveled the city, they leveled the temple, not one stone was left on top of another. They killed many of the Israelites, they killed many of the priests, Uh, they captured uh, the rest, drug them off to captivity in a foreign land. And Jeremiah the prophet said, for 70 years you will experience God's judgment, and you will live in exile, separated from the land, separated from my holy city, really separated from direct access to God's presence. Right? Well, after not 70 years, actually much less after about 50 years, uh, Cyrus becomes king of Persia. And uh, you know the story if you've read Ezra. Uh, sends a contingent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And the first wave of, of immigrants back to Jerusalem was a very small handful of people. And they come to a city that's just been destroyed. A small remnant had been living there, but it's, it's basically a destroyed city. And they went to this place with plans to rebuild the temple. Now just pick yourself, this is the context of Haggai. You've been living in captivity, basically as a prisoner, home away from home. All of your wealth, all of your possessions have been stripped. And you come back to what used to be a mighty nation to the capital city where people from around the world used to come and give gold and gifts and seek the counsel of kings. And you come back to a a totally destroyed city. No homes. The fields have been uh, neglected. The orchards have died. uh, The irrigation systems are gone. And instead of a city of 
several hundred thousand people. You come back with this contingent of, you know, 10, 15,000 people. A lot of those spread out to areas around Judea. And there's just a handful of people really living in Jerusalem. David spent decades collecting timber and stones and masons and gold and silver. And now you're going to go build a temple. It reminds me when I was a kid. When I was a kid, we used to love to build things. And my dad was a carpenter, and he built houses, and I saw how my dad built houses, so we were convinced we could build stuff. So we'd go out in the timber, and we would scratch around, you know, these old dead trees, and, you know, we'd, we'd build stuff. You know, like the next day it would fall over. Well, that's probably about how these guys felt, you know. It's like, they have no materials, they have no supplies, they have no, you know, they have no tools, they have no money, they have no skill. There's not enough of them, and they're supposed to build a temple. And it says in Ezra that they got as far as laying the foundation and there was opposition, there was conflict, there were struggles. Uh, in, in, 530, for, in 538 B.C. they came to Jerusalem. 536 they laid the foundation stones. 536 they stopped building. Fifteen years, sixteen years passes by till the book of Haggai comes along. And for sixteen years nothing had been done on the temple. During that time, they built homes, they got their crops going. They got busy with just living there. They got busy getting settled in, uh, taking care of their families, getting their crops, planting their crops, harvesting, chopping up the banana things to feed the pigs, you know, all those things. Uh, and that's, that's the context and history and uh, setting of Haggai. Um, and so with that context, the, the book starts that on the 20th of August, a word comes from God through Haggai. Now the date's significant uh, for a lot of reasons. For now, just let me say that the 20th of August, by Jewish calendar, and in the Hebrew text, it actually says it was the first day of the month. Uh, the first day of the month was significant and important because normally, if you look back through the Old Testament law, the first day of the month was to be a great celebration day at the temple. Okay, what was supposed to happen on the first day of the month is they were all supposed to gather, have special feasts, have special celebrations, special sacrifices, special worship. One small glitch. There was no church. All right? There was no temple. So on the first day of the month, they all showed up, and there's this like, painful reminder, oh yeah, we can't do this. Okay? 15 years have gone by. That's 180 months. 180 months they've showed up and go, oh, oh yeah, we forgot. There's no temple. And they go home. Uh, now, I don't know, I have this, this is not biblical, okay, this is just my crazy imagination. But I have this vision that, like, they had, like, a monthly rebuild the temple committee meeting, first day of the month. And they'd all show up and they'd have their committee meeting, they'd give their reports, you know, How's giving coming in? Oh, we got another $2,000 in this month. Yay, praise God. And that little chart on the wall. Needed to build the temple. $10 million. Collected to date, 500000 right? And we got 2000 more. Oh, yay. We can buy one more rock, right? Um, and they get all excited. And, you know, they probably had 15, I mean, 15 years, I can't imagine how many times they redo drew the temple plans, you know. Every time, more and more elaborate. Because you've got to have the kitchen, and you've got to have the nursery. You know, they have 15 years to fight about what color the carpet is. I mean, you know, they were planning. They were well organized, right? And, 
They were ready to rebuild this temple. But nothing had been done. Nothing had been done. Fifteen years had gone by. Nothing had happened. Uh, and so uh, the message comes on the first day of the month. That, and it's, it's impressive to me and important that God speaks. Haggai makes it very clear that it wasn't just his agenda. It's not just, you know, this guy who's uh, inflamed about the situation. But ultimately, Haggai says, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Haggai says, I'm just the, the, the tool, I'm just the conduit, but it's coming from God. God speaks. You know, sometimes in my own life, I get this idea that God only speaks when I'm really spiritually prayed up and, you know, in the right place. These people were not in the right place, okay? Uh, they were not putting God first, and yet God spoke. God is a God who is constantly speaking. And I believe that with all my heart that He is communicating truth to His people. He is... Uh, disclosing his plan and his purpose. The problem is not God speaking. The problem is usually our listening. The word of the Lord comes to these people, uh, clearly and specifically, because God does not want them to continue down the wrong path. And so he speaks with very clear, powerful, direct words about their situation and his will and purpose. Uh, It says... In verse 4, it actually says not only does the Lord speak, but it says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of heaven's armies. And it was a word that had come to really represent not just God, but the sovereign God who had control over all things. As we see later on in the book, and especially in this chapter, it is a God who is over nature, who is over the storms and the rain and the sea and the winds and the earthquakes. It is a God who is sovereign to shake the nations, who has the power to conduct and govern and oversee the affairs of men. This is not a weak God. This is not a God who's going, boy, you know, I wish you all would kind of pay attention to me. This is a God who's powerful and who is in control and who will accomplish His purpose in the world. And uh, his, his purpose is not being accomplished. And God makes, makes it very clear, you must act. Okay, it was up to them to act, but God was sovereign over speaking and directing and uh, seeing that his will is carried out. Um, God speaks through people. He speaks here through Haggai. We don't really know anything about Haggai. Uh, He really is not important. Isn't that good to know the messengers are not important? What's important is the message. We have no information about who Haggai is. We don't know if he's a godly man, if he's a priest. We know he's a man who was certainly listening to and seeking and hearing God. But we don't know if he had any official role, if he was in the priesthood, if he was not in the priesthood. We don't know anything about him. But the word comes through him as a guy who is seeking God and listening, waiting upon God, seeking God's will. And God speaks to him and through him to the people. Uh, the, The message is specifically addressed not just to people in general, but it's uh, addressed to two people whose names we really can't pronounce very well. Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua. Uh, so it's interesting that Zerubbabel is actually a, a Babylonian name. It really literally means the seed of, Babel, of Babylon. Uh, he was probably, was, was most certainly born in exile and had been given a Babylonian name, not a Jewish name. Uh, he is appointed as governor. Uh, Jeshua was the high priest. 
Haggai doesn't mess around. He doesn't just go off to one corner. He doesn't go to the committee meeting of the rebuilding of the temple project and talk to the committee. He goes to the governor. He goes to the top guy in the church and he says, you guys need to take action. You're responsible for this. So he delivers the message to a place where it will have the most impact and significance. Uh, And he starts off with just a, a brief thesis of the message. He says, the word of the Lord came, the, the Lord of hosts says to you. And he starts off by quoting uh, a common phrase that the people had been saying. And in, 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 to paraphrase it, it would be simply this. Now is not a good time. That would be the simple paraphrase. Uh, literally says, uh, now is not the time. The time has not come. The time has not come. So as they're having their committee meeting and they're, they're talking about the money raised and they've got their blueprints and they picked out the carpet and the paint and they've got all these plans, you know, somebody, some, some, some maybe Haggai makes a motion, I move, we start construction this week. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's Jeshua stands up or whoever the chairman of the board is. You know how this works, right? The chairman of the board stands up and he gets that serious look. Well... Let's pray about that, <laughs> right? Which almost always in a committee meeting means, I don't think so, Bob, right? Let's pray about it, right? And, and they've been praying for 15 years, you know? We're going to pray about it some more. Yeah, we got because we need to make sure God is in this, right? So they pray some more, and then they say, you know, we just don't feel it's the right time right now, Right? We're just not sure that, that, that this is the time for rebuilding the temple. Right? We want to rebuild the temple. Okay? The issue here is not goal or desire or purpose. These guys had a serious vision to rebuild the temple. I think they had t-shirts made up. You know, Vision, rebuilding the temple one stone at a time. You know, they had banners, they had posters, they had campaigns. They had tons of vision. They had goals. They had plans. If you were to ask them, do you want the temple of God? They would have said, absolutely. We must have the temple of God. This is important. We've got to have the temple. Okay, I don't think they were callous or indifferent about this. I think they were very serious and very intentional about their desire for the temple. Uh, It's probably hard for us to appreciate really how significant and important the temple was for their worship. But they all knew that they couldn't really do church without the temple. The reality is we can do church anywhere. You know, we don't need this building. We can go out in the jungle, a rice field, in somebody's home, in a basement. We can do church anywhere. With three, four people, with three, four thousand people. For them, it didn't work that way. They could not uh, have church without a temple. So for them, the goal to rebuild the temple was serious and significant. And uh, they were very serious about it. But here's an important principle. Having goals is never the same as doing something. Very important point. Really the point of this first section. Having goals is not the same as taking action. Uh, They had great goals, great vision, great focus, great purpose, they had all read The Purpose Driven Life. They had all, you know, their five steps. They had written it all out. Okay. 
They weren't doing any of it. They weren't doing any of it. I really think that in the Christian life it's so easy to do this. To convince ourselves that because we have the right goals and vision that we're doing the Christian life. Right? It's like, well, I know I'm supposed to be praying and reading the Word and walking with God and I have a vision to do that. I'm a purpose-driven life kind of person and I have those goals laid out. And one of these days, I'm going to get around to it. And so, because I have that desire, I'm a pretty good Christian. Right? I know because I've lived a lot of my Christian life that way. Because I intend to do it, because I'm, I, I have it as a goal, and sometimes I actually get around to it, but for the most part, not. Therefore, I'm pretty much on the right path. Right? Well, Haggai says, thinking about it is not the same as doing. Planning is not the same as executing. Having a vision is not the same as taking action. Uh, they had great vision and great goals, but God was not happy with them. God was not happy because they were not taking action. We've got to be very careful. We don't deceive ourselves into thinking that because we know what we're supposed to be doing, it's the same as doing it. Huge disconnect, right? Huge disconnect. And the reality is that, I mean, this is how it works in my life. I don't know how it works in your life. This is how it works in my life. I have my plans. I know. I have my vision. I see myself as a great man of God, Moses, standing on the mountain, praying for hours, you know, every day. Meeting God in His Word, just filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by Him. That's my vision. It's a dream, right? But I get up in the morning, and it just doesn't go that way, right? And there's phone calls, and I get distracted with email, and I get up late, and there's meetings, and there's, there's life. And so at the end of the day, it's like, oh, it didn't work today. That's okay, there's tomorrow. And because I want this, and because I really plan on it, it's okay, Tomorrow comes, and what happens? Well, the same thing happens, right? Life sweeps me away. And pretty soon, days turn into weeks, into months, into years, right? And the, and, and, and the thing is, I have my goals, but I also have excuses. Okay, it's good to have goals, and it's good to cover yourself with excuses, right? That's the key to life. Good goal, the right goals, and good excuses. Okay, now if you have bad goals, then you should feel guilty, Right? If you have good goals and lots of excuses, you can be happy. It was working for these people, okay? And these were their excuses. It was, oh, we just don't have time. We just don't have time. It's not the right time. So therefore, it's okay, right? Well, what did they mean by that? Well, it doesn't elaborate a lot, although from the context we can gather some idea of what they meant by that. Um, first of all, uh, Darius which, by the way, is not the same Darius in other, I think it's in Daniel. It's a different Darius. Uh, this Darius uh, became king in 522. Okay, this letter was written in 520. He was basically a brand new king. Uh, he had to wrestle power from, some, from a coup. And it was really a time of great social and political unrest. You know, there was the whole red shirt, yellow shirt thing. They closed the airport. It was kind of that kind of thing. Uh, he had taken over Egypt, which they had lost. He tried to take over um, Central Africa. That didn't work so well. Uh, there were economic problems. Uh, he did eventually stabilize his kingdom and have a long reign. 
But at the beginning of his kingdom, things were touch and go. And there were problems. And there was a lot of political unrest and stability. And I, and I don't know that they said this, but I can imagine them thinking, well, you know, now is not a... Look at all the things going on in the world. It's a tough time in the world right now. There's economic downturns, there's global instability, there's the swine flu, you know. There's the price of oil going up. It's not a good time to be starting this expensive, elaborate construction project. Right? This is not a good time. Support's down, you know... There's not a lot of money right now. Politically, the, 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 the things going on in the world, it's not a good time right now. Um, another ex- excuse is that they personally just didn't have enough time. He talks a lot in the chapter about their harvest and their planting and their building houses. And certainly, moving into a destroyed city and rebuilding it is time-consuming. It takes a lot of work and effort. I have no doubt that they were very busy with life, right? And I'm sure they were thinking, you know, we can't even get our harvest in. We can't even get our, our, our crops planted. We can't get our gardens weeded and our wheat threshed. We can't, hardly, we can't hardly take care of everyday life. We're supposed to take on another project besides. And besides that, you know, things are just not going well. We're in the middle of this famine, this drought. And right now, personally, we just don't have time. We are very busy. So it's not a good time. We're just simply too busy. Uh, and on top of that, you know, we've got to take our kids to sports tournaments. And there's, you know, uh, there's the last adventure of Lost that I haven't seen yet. And there's all these things going on, right? I don't have time for this very involved project. We don't have enough time. Also, as you read through the rest of the chapter, it becomes clear that, that things were tough there. And I have no doubt that they, they were saying it's not a good time because really we're broke. They really did not have the resources required to, to start this project. Uh, these guys were just eking out a living. In fact, as you go through, uh, you see that it was a family. They were starving to death. Not only did they not have the resources to build this enormous multi-million dollar facility to worship God. They didn't even have money to hardly live. They, they, they were starving to death. Things were tough. Uh, economically, it was a bad time. And so they didn't have the money, they didn't have the resources. Uh, from a very practical point of view, as they had their committee meeting and they're looking at their $500,000 in the bank and the $10 million uh, cost of construction... They were going, well, we can't, we can't do this now. We don't have the resources. We can't, we can't do this. Not the right time. Finally, one other reason, and we don't know this for sure, but uh, it's just an observation. Uh, there may have been theological reasons. They may have had this idea that there's not enough grace. You see, only about 50 years had elapsed since they had been taken into captivity. Jeremiah the prophet had said that they would be in captivity for 70 years. Um, It could well be, we don't know this for sure, but it could be that they were saying, we haven't served our sentence yet. We don't deserve a temple. You know, God has not clearly spoken yet and said, now is the time. Right? I mean, how many times does that kill a board meeting? Well, we haven't heard from God. Well, they're going, it's not the right time. We haven't heard from God Maybe he still is ignoring us. Right? And they weren't understanding God's grace, God's heart. They really weren't understanding 
God's heart to be in their midst. Right? That God longed to be with them. They weren't getting it. Well, that was their excuses. And to be fair to them, they are good excuses. Okay? They, in fact, they are great excuses. And I like all of them. And I use them all well. All right? I, I, I collect these excuses. And if you want good ones, borrow these. They're great. And they're real. Okay? They're not making this up. But does God buy those excuses? Well, he may have bought the excuses except for one thing. Um, and he really spells that out in verse 4. He says, The Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai, and his message is this. And it says in the New Living, Why are you living in luxurious house, houses while my house lies in ruins? Literally, a better translation would be this. Is it time for you to live in your well-finished houses when my house lies in ruins? Is it time for you to live in luxury and comfort when my house is totally neglected? Is it time for that? Um, Their excuse would have been great. And And 15 years ago was probably a legitimate and fair excuse when they were without homes. God is not saying here that your needs aren't important, that it's not important that you survive or take care of yourself. But God's saying, hey, guys, look, you've had 15 years. The word here for paneled or ceilinged houses really gives the, the indication that their houses were well finished. You know, they weren't just partly under construction. They didn't just kind of put up a basic shell. No, we're talking... You know, fully, fully interior decorated. You know, they had the curtains, they had a lot of cute little pictures on the wall, the little knickknacky things on the shelf, they had a nice yard, a little fountain, you know. Things were well developed. Things had progressed well, right? Um, you're too busy mowing your nice lawn, and that's why you don't have time? That's kind of what God is saying. Is, there, is, it, is it time for you to, you know, redecorate, put up new curtains? When my house is completely untouched, that makes the excuses not quite so convincing. And really, the issue here is this. Is it ever the right time to have wrong priorities? Is it ever a good time or a good excuse to have your priorities out of order? And that's really what this is all about. It wasn't that they were misusing time or they didn't have enough time. It was that they had their priorities completely out of order. Uh, is it time for you to live in your nice house when my house hasn't even been touched, hasn't even been started? Um, it's not that God was not, <clears throat> you know, a low priority. He was kind of a no priority. Uh, and the deal with time is... Uh, my, my observation is that every single one of us in this room has the exact same 24 hours a day, right? Did anybody here figure out how to do 29 hours a day? I would love to know how to do that, right? We all, every person in the world, doesn't matter if you're a president, a king, or a homeless person on the street, every person gets these exact same 24 hours in a day. The issue is not time. The issue is always a matter of priorities. 
What is important to you? Okay? The reality is our goals are what we would like to do, but how we spend our time really is the definitive mark of what our priorities are. If we say God is first in our life because we have that as a goal, but we never make time for God in our daily agenda, our daily schedule, our daily itinerary, then God's not important. God is not a priority in your life. And that's the challenge of Haggai. He says, yeah, look, you say you you want this temple, you say God is important, but the truth is, He is not anything to you because you are not making time for Him. But you have time for everything else. The reality is, there is always time to do what's important to us. Right? There is always time for us to do, we always manage to squeeze in time to do what we want to do. Right? Somehow or another, the things that are important to us, we do. Uh, sometimes not because we want to, sometimes because of other reasons. Uh, sometimes, you know, our wife wants us to do something and it's important not to make her upset, so we do it, right? Or vice versa. But we always find time to do the things that are important. And God is saying here, you judge by, by your priorities the things that you do. What is important in your life? He says, look at this, 15 years and my house is totally neglected. You haven't done a thing. Tell me how important I am in your life. Uh, It's interesting. Haggai uses the word here, not for temple, but literally the word for house. The word that's used here, he says, it's time for you to build your own house, but my house is in ruins. Same exact word. He doesn't say, you've neglected my temple, but you've built your own house. He uses here the word for house both times. Uh, And I think it's significant. Because building of the temple, building of God's house, what is this really about? And we might be thinking, well, you know, this is all well and good, but we, we don't live in the Old Testament. We don't have to have the temple. We can worship God anywhere. What is this really about for you and I? Well, I really believe that throughout all of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, into this day, the principle has not changed. The principle is this, that God desires to dwell with his people. Whether it's in a tent, whether it's in an elaborate temple like Solomon's or the one later built by these people, or if it's the temple that God wants to build in our lives, the principle is exactly the same. That God's intention and desire is to dwell and commune and fellowship with his people. Uh, John 14 says it this way. Jesus says, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and and we will come and make our home with each of them. Same thing. God's heart is to make his home with us. Uh, Ephesians 3 says it this way. Paul says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts through this work of God in in our spirit. The difference is that in the Old Testament the temple was external, was, was in Jerusalem. Through the work of Christ, 
through His blood, through the sacrifice on the cross, the, the veil in the temple was ripped in two. That mode of God's house was no longer valid. Now the temple is in us. It is in our heart and soul. And God's heart and desire is that we would build a place, a home for Him in our lives. And He's done this amazing work through Christ to make that possible. Jesus died on the cross so that God could live with us, in us, that we could fellowship and commune with Him in our heart and in our soul, in the, in the depths of our life. And, you know, the reality is, it is so easy for us. We have an access to God that people in the Old Testament would have, I mean, would have given anything. Imagine Haggai. I mean, he went off because they couldn't build the temple. Uh, and he longed to go worship there. Imagine if he knew of us. We wouldn't even need a building where God has built a temple in our hearts and lives. Uh, the New Testament says that the prophets of old longed for this day, this day you and I have, this amazing privilege of walking directly into the presence of God. And yet, the reality is, do we make time to go there? Is it really a priority for us to spend time with God? Let's pray. Father, we just really ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I know that everyone here is is so busy. And the life and the world we live in is full of activity and rush. Uh, Lord, there are a lot of demands and pressures on our schedule, on our time. There are expectations that press on us from all around. But Lord, help us to evaluate our priorities about how we, how we make time or don't make time for you. And Lord, I don't know what all that looks like, and as we go through this book, you will unfold for us what time with you looks like, what it means to make a priority for a meeting with you. But just for now, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our heart about uh, maybe some of the excuses that we use or some of the false ideas we have that because we have this goal or this concept that we're supposed to be doing these things, that that's good enough. Lord, we want you to set the agenda for our life. And just right now, in stillness before you, we would ask you, Lord, uh, how do you want us to be spending time? Uh, Lord, how, how do you want us to be spending time in a way that makes you a priority? That it would be clear that you are the first and most important thing in our life. Lord, we want to honor you, not just by our service, but by our time, by building a place where we meet in fellowship with you, where we commune with you daily. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.